You are listening to As a Woman, Episode 34, Endometriosis. You've been waiting for this one. In this episode, I'm going to talk about what endometriosis is, how do you know if you have it, what does it mean, and what do you need to do about it? Learn more here. Welcome to As a Woman, the podcast hosted by fertility physician, Dr. Natalie Crawford, to educate and empower women. Each week, learn about your health, your fertility, and how they relate to your true self. Become a part of the community, fostering collaboration over competition while learning how to authentically find your voice and amplify others as a woman. Hi, friends. Welcome back to As a Woman. You are currently listening to episode number. 34, endometriosis. For the rest of the episode, I'm going to call it endo for short because it's just a big word. And you have been asking for this episode for so long. And I've been waiting and waiting because it's a lot to cover. And there's so much out there, so much we don't know, so much that's hypothesis. And I'm just going to give it all to you now. First of all, I'm going to say endo sucks. This is a real disease. It is a real disease with big consequences, and women often are not taken seriously. And this is a huge issue for us as a society, that when women have pain, very often they are told just to suck it up, keep going on, you've got to go to work or school or take care of your kids and live your life, and often this pain just becomes normal. And what happens to normal? Because we are humans, we just adapt to it. What I have found is that women with endometriosis are some of the strongest women I know. They have this high tolerance for pain because they've been living with this underlying pain for so long. And I just want to say, if you're listening and this is you, girl, I'm proud of you. You're doing great. This sucks. If this is not you, so you don't have the disease or you don't think you do, but you're listening just to learn, welcome. I'm glad you're in the space You need to know what your friends are going through because this is a highly prevalent disease. We think that the overall probability of endometriosis is about 10% of women. That's huge. And studies where they just looked at patients getting tubal ligation, so without any problems, totally asymptomatic, no symptoms, the rate was about 7%. In women who have pain, one of the symptoms, the risk of having the disease was higher, 20 to 30%. And women with infertility, between 10 to 50% have endo. And if you are a teenager, and I say this stat all the time, if you are a teenager with severe pelvic pain with your periods, that limits you from participating in activities, going out with friends, going to school. We call that dysmenorrhea, pain with your period. 50% have endometriosis. Huge, huge, huge number. One of the biggest issues, and I say this all the time, and I think it's really important to understand before we even dive into what this is, endometriosis is very hard to diagnose. Currently, the only way to diagnose the disease is with surgery. So me, as your doctor, I may hear your symptoms and say, I think there's a very good chance you have endometriosis. Let's act as if you do. But we may not go to surgery depending on your situation. But important to know, cannot diagnose the disease without surgery. It's a surgical diagnosis only. There are clinical symptoms that make it highly suspicious, but surgery is how we diagnose the disease. This means 
all the women who do not have surgery, we do not really know if they have the disease. So the prevalence really could be much higher than some of these numbers I'm saying here because we can't go and evaluate every single person. And that's important to understand that unless you're having surgery, you don't truly have the disease, at least not the diagnosis of the disease. So what is endometriosis? This is how I explain it to patients. So let's have a mental image of the female anatomy. You have your uterus. The uterus is composed of three layers. The outer layer is called the serosa. The inner layer is called the myometrium or the muscle. And the very innermost layer is the endometrium. The endometrium is what is that fluffy tissue that's the home for the embryo to come and implant. That's what you shut off every month when you have a period. You then have your fallopian tubes coming off, which are open on the ends, and then your ovaries are close by, but not attached. So the fallopian tubes are just open-ended, connected with what we call the peritoneal cavity, or the inside of the abdomen. There's the female anatomy in a quick nutshell. Now, endometriosis, in its simplest terms, is the endometrium, the inside of the uterus, in the wrong place. So it's outside the uterus pelvic cavity, that peritoneal cavity, that gets endometriosis or endometrial implants on it. It can go on your ovaries, your intestines, your appendix, just on the peritoneum. A very common place is behind the uterus. But that endometrial tissue exists in places that it is not supposed to be. Now, there are many different hypotheses for why this happens, for why do you get endo. The most common one or the one that I think makes a lot of sense and what I usually tell patients that we believe is imagine your uterus and you're on your period and it you're cramping. Some of those red blood cells that make up the endometrium, so some of those endometrial cells, they're bleeding out, hey, that's your period. Some of them are actually migrating out your fallopian tubes also. We know that for a fact. Surgeries done on women who are on their period for other reasons You have appendicitis, and so you go get surgery to take your appendix out. You just happen to be on your period. We know that you will see blood inside the peritoneal cavity like 90% of the time in those situations. So we know menstrual blood moves through the fallopian tubes. So that alone does not cause endometriosis. So if it happens 90% of the time, what endometriosis really is is considerate an autoimmune disease. So the blood is coming out the fallopian tubes, and in women who do not have endo, so I don't have endo, my body says, ah, no big deal, Nat's on her period, cleans it up, ignores it, whatever. But for the woman who has endometriosis, your body goes into overdrive. Oh my gosh, these cells are abnormal, we're gonna start to attack them. It's an autoimmune disease with high inflammation. And then these little implants get attached. They become highly inflammatory. And then with the next cycle, when you grow an egg and your body makes estrogen, estrogen is the food for the endometrium. We know that. That's how we grow a nice thick lining. That estrogen also stimulates these little tissue areas outside the uterus. So we know for sure that the body is attacking the tissue that is outside the body. The theory that I gave you is called retrograde menstruation, that blood moves through the fallopian tubes, that we know that happens in all women. I think that makes the most sense for why this process gets started. But other theories, for completeness sake, 
They would include that your germline cells, so your cells when your body is developing, your little embryo, the cells that make the endometrium kind of migrate to the wrong place. It could be that endometrial cells migrate through your blood vessels or through your lymph system, or it could be like a direct transport. Like we know that women can get endometriosis in their C-section scars. So when you directly cut into the uterus, that actually gives endometriosis a pathway to move out. So regardless of what really causes it, it's honestly probably like most things in medicine, multifactorial. There are a lot of different things going on. Some genetic predisposition. We see that this runs in families. If you have a first degree relative, a mom or a sister who has endo, you are six to seven times more likely to have it. Six to seven. Oh my gosh, that's a huge number. So definitely there's a genetic predisposition. There is some mechanism that the endometrium gets outside the uterus and then this autoimmune reaction. Autoimmune diseases run in families too. So this pathway of genetic predisposition, some migration of the endometrial tissue outside the uterus, and changes in your immune system leading to an autoimmune reaction and inflammation is really what causes this disease. One thing we also know is that endometriosis, when the endometrial cells are outside the uterus, they change their cellular properties. Easiest way to think of this, hey, it functions good when it's where it's supposed to be. So when the endometrium is inside the uterus, it has the right number of receptors and responds to hormones. However, when endo is outside the uterus, it changes how it functions. So that endometrial tissue now increases the amount of estrogen it makes. It increases the amount of prostaglandin, so inflammation factors, and it's more resistant to progesterone. So we know that once endo gets outside and implants outside the uterus, it's now harder to control and respond to hormones. So a lot of different factors here are playing a role in how women develop endo. Pain is the number one symptom of the disease. Women can be asymptomatic and have endo, but pain by far is the number one symptom. This is because those little patches are highly inflammatory and inflammation leads to pain. And when I say pain, so this can be pain with your periods. That's called dysmenorrhea. That's the most common. It can be pain with intercourse, dyspareunia. Typically, this is with deep penetrating positions because it's behind the uterus. This posterior cul-de-sac is a very lovely place that endo loves to go and hide in. It can also be bowel changes or pain with bowel movements or bowel changes when you're on your period. Pain is the number one symptom. Now, chronic inflammation can lead to scarring. So when we think of endo, there are stages of disease. So if we go to surgery and we look for the disease, we are then going to go and stage it. One, two, three, four. Now, stage one is more mild and stage four is severe. This is based on amount of disease present. And I like to think of it as a spectrum where it's going from mild and it's a highly inflammatory disease to chronic inflammation over a long time leads to scarring. Imagine you have a wound on your arm and you're picking at it all the time. It's inflamed, it's inflamed, it's inflamed. Eventually it will scar. It may not hurt anymore once it gets a scar, 
but there are other long-term impacts of scarring your pelvic anatomy in certain places. Alternatively, it may hurt chronically once you get to the scar phase. And my least favorite thing, I mean, there are a lot of things I don't like about endo, but my least favorite thing are called endometriomas. Endometriomas are cysts inside the ovary that are filled with endometriosis. They are lovingly called chocolate cysts because endometriosis is really chocolatey, brown, yucky. Girls, just think of the old blood from your period. That's kind of what it looks like. It's yucky. But this is how it happens. So this should make sense to us. Because if you've listened to the menstrual cycle episode, you know how your hormones work. So you've got your ovaries. You have a group of eggs that come out of the vault. Each egg grows in a follicle. The brain sends out follicle-stimulating hormone, or FSH. FSH stimulates a follicle to grow. As the follicle grows, it makes estrogen and the egg matures. Great. But then the follicle ruptures. That's what happens with ovulation. You have a cyst, a follicle's a cyst, a fluid-filled structure, and it ruptures, releasing the egg into the peritoneal cavity. Now, the cyst reseals and forms a little progesterone production factory. That's awesome. It's called the corpus luteum, highly important, essential for conception, keeps that early pregnancy going. However, while that little cyst is ruptured, once you've ovulated, if you have endo floating around in your peritoneal cavity, it may say, oh, look at the ovary. It's so vascular and lovely. I'm going to go dive on in right now and plant and grow. So endo jumps into that little follicle, gets this home inside this corpus luteum that's blood rich and gives it all the nutrients it needs. And then you have it. You have a cyst on your ovary filled with endometriosis. Now, to be fair, some women will tell me, well, my doctor diagnosed endo on my ultrasound. I've done it too. Here's the deal. You can only diagnose stage four disease on ultrasound. It is when a woman has an endometrioma that you can look at her and say, I know you've got endo. I can see it right here. Now, a corpus luteum and an endometrioma actually look the same. They are typically homogenous, that means dark looking because it's blood filled cyst inside the ovary. So a one-time ultrasound when you are in your luteal phase doesn't guarantee you have the disease because I don't know, oh, is this a normal corpus luteum cyst or is this an endometriosis cyst? However, seeing that cyst in the follicular phase of the cycle is not normal. So functional cysts that sometimes women have if you don't have endo, you can actually get a cyst that's no big deal. We call them functional. Your cyst, you know, you have a follicle that grows, it ruptures, the egg comes out, follicle reseals, makes progesterone, la la la, and just doesn't heal up normally. No big deal. Those are fine. They will go away. However, the endometriosis cyst does not go away. It may fluctuate a little based on hormones. However, it's there. And this is not good for anybody one of my least favorite things. And that's because endometriosis, ovarian cysts, ovarian surgery are one of the only things that can tap into the vault of eggs. Highly destructive. Inflammation is never good. This endometriosis can start to eat into your good eggs and decrease your overall egg count. 
going and taking them out will also decrease your egg count. When we pull and we strip that cyst wall out of the ovary, we know we're going to lose some eggs with the process. That means what a doctor like me may say you need to do really will vary based on how many eggs you have, stage of life you're at, how many kids you want, how many kids you have. I've taken some of them out. I am now favoring more towards leaving more of them in, doing an IVF cycle around them, letting eggs grow around them. And that's because I always think of your body, your ovaries, your egg count, that's a finite number. Once you're out, you're out. We've got to protect it. And so going through with repetitive ovarian surgeries, you will have a drop in your egg number. And similarly, having endometriomas that fester over a prolonged period of time, that will drop your egg number. So let's think about this. Once you have endometriosis, you have implants on your peritoneal cavity, potentially inside the ovary, and you're just going through natural cycles. So you're not on birth control pills or hormones at all. Your body will grow another egg. Your body will make estrogen. The endometrium loves estrogen. All these implants, wherever they are, stimulated. And so the disease, wherever it is, gets worse with every period. With your normal natural hormones, you are inadvertently stimulating lesions that are causing more inflammation and getting bigger and going to cause more problems over time. And this is why hormones or modifying the body is often helpful in the prevention of the disease from getting worse. And one of the first-line treatments, especially for younger women who you don't want to put them through surgery. So I often hear, well, I had painful periods as a teen. My doctor just put me on birth control pills. Actually, not wrong. Because what do birth control pills do, guys? Birth control pills are a different type of estrogen and a little bit of progesterone. And so what happens is these endometrial implants are not stimulated by the pill and the pill prevents the brain from sending out FSH and LH. Therefore, you're not ovulating. You're not opening up that cyst to let endo in. You're not making any exogenous estrogen, which is endo's favorite food. And you're kind of keeping the disease quiet. Can't make it go away. Once you got it, you got it, unless you go to surgery. And even then, it's probably going to come back because this is some genetic predisposition plus an altered immunity. Unless you have surgery and go on constant hormone suppression, it's going to come back. So understanding that some studies have shown that birth control pills use for a long time, over four years, when they stopped the pill, They had no higher chance of infertility. They actually had improved fertility to women who had not been on prolonged birth control pill. And we think that's probably when some women who had endometriosis were being treated with the pill and some women who had endometriosis were having their natural cycles and they were letting their disease, not knowing it, of course, get worse every month, tolerating the pain, just learning coping mechanisms. However, their insides were highly inflammatory. And that's why birth control pills are a first-line treatment. They can be an easy thing to do to prevent the disease. Other mechanisms to prevent ovulation are helpful treatments or stopping hormone production because you're stopping the stimulation of some of these lesions. It can be progesterone only, so that can work. 
we know progesterone inhibits endometrial growth and it kind of prevents the tissue from responding the same way. We know that from normal endometrium, how it responds to progesterone. So you could take daily progesterone every day. You could take the Depo-Provera shot. That's an option. Not everybody loves it because women love estrogen more than progesterone. And being in a high progesterone state, you often don't love it. And prolonged progesterone, when it's so high that you're not ovulating, will lead you into a state of being chronically so low in estrogen that it's not good for you, that you could have like bone mineral loss, you can have symptoms of vaginal atrophy and other things that you don't really want to have. One thing I haven't gone into much is that FSH and LH come from the pituitary gland. They are stimulated by the hypothalamus, which sends out GnRH, gonadotropin-releasing hormone. FSH and LH are gonadotropins. But if you prevent GnRH secretion, you also prevent FSH and LH secretion, therefore inhibiting ovulation and hormone production. So the different ways to do that are called GnRH agonists and antagonists. Agonists are medications that actually upregulate GnRH. So you get this little flare response where the brain sends out all the FSH and LH it has, and then it dies off. This medication is called Lupron. It is an injectable medication. It can be given every day. We've done that. We do that in IVF cycles. That's highly unproductive for your life if you have endo. It can be given in a one-month or a three-month shot. This is what people may talk about when they say, oh, medical menopause. If you don't have any FSH and LH and therefore your ovaries are not ovulating or making estrogen, that is kind of what menopause is. Ovaries don't work. You don't make estrogen. The pathway is different, but kind of the end result is the same. However, it's usually transient. We can't do this forever. Sometimes it's a good adjunct to coming off surgery or before doing something else. But there are symptoms with this too. So just as if you were estrogen deficient for menopause, you could get hot flashes, vaginal dryness, you get headaches, you can get bone mineral loss if you do this for too long. So often we combine it with an add back some type of treatment. That can be just a progesterone called norethindrone. It could be an estrogen progesterone, but usually you have to add something back with it. It still can be highly effective. And the other option is a GnRH antagonist. That's a true blocker. Previously, we really were not using this because the only form was injectable. It was only short-acting, about 23 and a half hours, highly expensive. But now there's an oral version, a pill form called Orlissa that women can take that is more affordable, that also can provide them some relief without some of the bad side effects. And women have been pretty happy on that. Of course, it's a new medication, so long-term studies are lacking. And then there's some other hormone modulators. So there's aromatase inhibitors, which women can use. You may have heard of these, like letrozole or anastazole. What they do is they eat up estrogen in the periphery. If you take them, then that would increase the brain desire to send out FSH and grow a follicle. So we don't typically use these unless they're in combination with another medication, and then we can. So a common one is an aromatase inhibitor like anastazole with a progestin like norethindrone. That can be an option. 
And then there's an older medication called Danazol. We do not like really use this at all anymore because it was highly androgenic, meaning women got virilized on it. They started getting male things, acne, hirsutism, atrophy of their vagina, deepening of their voice. And if you took it and got pregnant, there would be true virilization of a female fetus that could totally change the development of her genital anatomy. So that one for us is really a no-go anymore. But for the medical management, as far as hormonal control of endometriosis, these are our options. Now, combined birth control pills, those are usually easy with the fewest side effects, relieves pain in 75 to 90% of women, prevents the disease from getting worse at the same rate that it would naturally. That's an easy first-line use for young women. So you can see why women are getting prescribed combined birth control pills. Now, what about surgery? Surgery has controversial things in different studies, depending on what we're looking at as our outcome or a long-term goal. Because anytime you do surgery, it has risks. It's an invasive procedure. You may develop more scarring afterward. We don't know how the body always responds. But there have been studies that shown pretty clearly that for most women, if pain is their number one concern, not fertility, pain, that surgery can be helpful, especially if they have mild or minimal disease, so stage one or stage two disease. You get high pain relief for the first year. So about 70% of women will have pain relief. It'll come back. So at a rate that's different for every woman, your endo will come back. And it can improve fertility in some studies. And I'm going to go into that in a second. For moderate or severe disease, less women have improvement of pain with surgery, much higher occurrence rate, and pregnancy rates are less dramatically impacted by surgery. Surgery studies haven't shown a difference in excision or ablation, cutting the tissue out or destroying it. I think as long as you're removing those endometrial cells one way or another, it's helpful. Excision or ablation may have different risks later for future scarring or problems. So remember, think of endo as a spectrum, mild inflammatory disease to scarring, yucky, anatomy-distorting disease. Once your anatomy is totally distorted from surgery, there's often very little we can do to help. We can try to put things back together, and you may get some improvement, but you're going to have other scar-like pathways once the tissue's truly been destroyed. And the mild minimal disease, taking out some of that disease may make an improvement as far as pain goes because inflammation is painful. And removal of endometriomas, as I already said, we are sacrificing. There's a compromise. We will have a decrease in our ovarian reserve from ovarian surgery. And there still is a chance that these things are going to come back. So we have to understand that. So surgery can be helpful for the woman who is in pain and pain is her number one symptom. I always say if I do surgery or if a friend does surgery and you're not trying to get pregnant, so you're just an endo patient, you need to then go on hormones. If you're not going to go on hormones to prevent the disease from coming back, there's no point of going through the surgery. So you need to do both. If you're not trying to get pregnant, so my pregnant people or my infertility patients, you're a different group. But you need to say, okay, I'm going to have surgery, then going to prevent the disease from coming back. Otherwise, it's going to, and it wasn't worth it, okay? 
So that's something super important to just understand. You can take out the lesions. If you still have periods naturally, the cells are going to come out there. Your body's going to attack them. They're going to grow again. So if you go through surgery, suppress your body, have these little lesions that are not being stimulated, that's a treatment approach. And that's good for pain. Most of my patients, guys, they're not here to see me for pain. They have pain. They're dealing with it. Not that they could care less about it, but whatever to the pain. They want a baby. So infertility. Let's think about infertility and endo. So what are the pathways that endo impacts fertility? We know that women who have endo have lower rates of getting pregnant than women who do not. And we also know that more women in the infertile population have endo than women who are fertile. So let's think about this. Endometriosis in the inflammatory phase, inflammation is toxic. I say this all the time. Your body's attacking your tissue. There's an autoimmune component and it's highly inflammatory. There's a lot of prostaglandins produced. Not good. Toxic, toxic. That toxic environment, even though it is outside the uterus, remember how your fallopian tubes are connected. That toxic environment exists inside the fallopian tube, probably alters how the tube can function, probably can impact the environment of which the egg grows inside, and that is impactful. So inflammation itself is not great. Now, how does inflammation outside the uterus impact implantation inside the uterus? I don't think we have that piece of the puzzle yet. I will say there is some really good research going on trying to see if the endometrium is different in women who have endo. So the inside the uterus endometrium is different in women who have endo than in women who do not. And it is looking like it is. There is a new test called BCL6, meaning you can do an endometrial biopsy, send it off, and women who are, have BCL6 in their endometrium or have a higher level, they are more likely to have endo than women who do not. And so it does look like there's probably some impact inside the uterus. This may help us screen women who need different types of treatment, go to IVF faster, need surgery, et cetera, et cetera. That's still up and coming, but we'll be excited to see when that rolls off versus putting women to surgery. But we do know toxic environment in the peritoneal cavity, that high inflammation is stress to the body, so increase chronic stress, increase of pain, which increases stress, decrease tubal function and motility, likely altered tubal environment. And this is the environment that the egg and the early embryo are exposed to. Very, very impactful. And I think this is probably a huge component for us. Just imagine you ovulate, the little egg goes through the toxic environment, gets picked up by the tube, sperm is coming into the tube, fertilization happens in the tube, embryo is formed. It takes the embryo five to six days then to get into the uterus. So that whole time, that five to six days, that embryo is exposed to that toxic tubal environment. And that is why I think at least there's a decrease in natural conception rates and even rates with IUI and treatments like that when you still need the tubes to function. Inflammation, toxic environment, phase one of how endo impacts infertility. Phase two, distortion of anatomy. So prolonged disease, when you get to that severe stage, can change your anatomy, can block your fallopian tubes, make it impossible for egg and sperm to actually meet. 
And also, once you get those endometriomas, you're starting to destroy that ovarian tissue and your egg count. And you can go into diminished ovarian reserve faster if that is you. So I always think surgery is the most beneficial for the patient who's super young, who wants to try to get pregnant naturally, who we think has mild or minimal disease, and who doesn't want to have a lot of children and is not afraid to go on hormone support between pregnancies. Because otherwise, not a good long-term plan. And understanding that the literature is not consistent in this. Surgery in some studies, so there was an RCT of about 300 women, did show that those who had infertility and endo and had the disease resected, ablated or excised, it didn't matter, versus those who did not, they just did a peak and left it there. Women who had the disease resected in that first year had a higher pregnancy rate of about 10%. However, further studies have not shown that also, so that was not consistently replicated. And in meta-analysis, pulling all of this data, looks like the number needed to treat women you have to put through surgery to get to one additional pregnancy is 8 to 12, which is pretty high. Surgery is expensive, invasive, risky, puts you out of work and other things. That's a pretty high number needed to treat for one pregnancy. But for the right patient population, it may make a difference. And I think this is because if you have minimal or mild disease, inflammation-related also, you still ovulate on your own. Your sperm is fine. Your tubes are open. If you take out those little patches of inflammation, you may then have an improvement essentially up to baseline what your counterpart who doesn't have endo would have in trying to get pregnant. And if you're young, remember that's peaking at 20 to 25% per month. So it's still no guarantee and the disease may come back. So if I have young women who ask me this, I'll say, hey, it's not wrong. If you have a lot of pain, you want to try this. But if you don't get pregnant in six months afterward, you need to do something else. So there's still a large proportion of patients who go through, try to get pregnant naturally, and it doesn't work for them. Studies have not shown us that doing the same with severe stage disease is beneficial for fertility, especially with natural conception. What about with IVF? IVF is the thing that is the most successful for endometriosis. It just is. I know you don't want to do IVF. I get it, but it is the best for so many different reasons. One is that I'm controlling so much, and this is the easiest way to tell you this. If you have endo, I am so sorry. You live in a constant toxic environment. The IVF lab is not toxic. It is so nice. It is perfectly pH balanced and the right temperature and everything has the right nutrients and there's no prostaglandins coming to attack us. So by undergoing IVF, stimulating the eggs to grow, but then taking them out, letting them go right from inside those follicles to the lab, putting sperm with them, letting those early embryos grow in the lab, they then are not exposed to that toxic tubal environment. That's out of the picture. We don't need the tubes. We don't need them. We don't care if they're distorted. We are allowing these early embryos to grow in a really nice environment. And I think that plays a huge role for us. We're then able to control and put the embryo in in a nice time cycle. We are also able to freeze embryos for later use, meaning if you then get an endometrioma or you have one, and I'm concerned that your ovarian reserve may be impacted, I'm now going to have embryos for later. So you don't have to let your disease impact your dream of a family of multiple children 
And I think that is lovely. I love when younger women who have endo or want to undergo surgery for pain are forward thinking and they're coming in and freezing their eggs or embryos before surgery. That's good. The truth is high estrogen environments may increase the disease. We're working on combining treatments with Lupron, Letrozole, or Lissa, seeing if that can prevent things from getting worse with stimulation. But we don't know. We're just trying our best with the data that we have. I also think that if you're going to consider freezing your eggs, you're a smart girl. Do it before your surgery in case disease is stimulated or in case something bad happens or something goes wrong or in case you have an ovarian endometrioma that's causing your pain that needs to come out. Remember that no surgery is without risks. I tell everybody this. And taking out endometriosis may leave an area in your pelvis that then gets scar tissue and hurts worse. So it can happen that way. You have to be prepared for those outcomes. If fertility is our ultimate goal, we are now talking less and less about surgery and more and more about early IVF. That's where this field is going because it's overcoming so many things, helping preserve your fertility for later. And then we're combining it with some type of hormone suppression between pregnancies. I don't think that super ovulation, so medications like Clomid, Letrozole or Femara, gonadotropins with IUI, that's not wrong for endo patients if everything else is fine, sperm's fine, tubes are at least open. I still believe that tubal function is probably impacted by the environment, even if the tube is open on imaging, but it may improve the efficiency of trying to get pregnant. So if you do surgery and say I'm going to do a couple IUI cycles, but it needs to be limited because you are going to increase your disease as you do those cycles because ovulation allows for opportunity for endo to get in your ovary and also allows for stimulation of disease that is there. So I don't love that option either. To be honest, I'm going more aggressive because I've seen more of the bad cases where endo becomes a really rate-limiting step for us or doing surgery alone hasn't really made any impact in our fertility. So going to IVF faster and trying to preserve embryos for the future is an ongoing treatment plan for us. I really believe this has to be an individualized treatment plan based on your age, ovarian reserve, anatomy, partner sperm, do you ovulate, how many kids do you want, how bad is your disease. But in general, if you're over 35, you need to do IVF. If you have severe disease, you need to do IVF. If you want more than one kid, you should probably do IVF if you're over 30. We just need to be thinking about the big picture. It's not that all roads lead to IVF. It just really does help this disease so much. I'm going to wrap up by saying I believe that autoimmunity and inflammation matter. I believe that trying to control the environment and the life that you live really does matter. We know that autoimmune diseases like to live together. So I screen my endo patients for autoimmune thyroid disease. And I also ask them if they have sensitivity to gluten or have them consider getting screened for that because we know autoimmune diseases love to live together. I believe that we need to control what we eat in order to control our inflammation. If you have endo, you already are high inflammation. I'm so sorry, girl, you are. You then need to do everything else you can 
to not add extra inflammation to that environment. That's meat. Studies have consistently shown that meat, especially red meat and poultry, are really inflammatory. Our body doesn't like them. Do you know what else? Dairy. These animal-based products are not natural in our body. We can debate if they taste delicious or if you love them or if your body's totally fine with them, but I'm going to tell you that from studies, red meat, poultry, and dairy are higher on inflammation, and we see increased risk of endometriosis with the more of those that we eat. We see a decreased risk of endometriosis with an increased diet of fruits and vegetables. This is not a coincidence, guys. We see that women who go gluten-free have a decrease in pain. So if pain is the metric, women who do not eat gluten and have endo, even if they do not have celiac disease, so women who are screened and don't have celiac disease but cut gluten out of their diet, have a drop in pain. If inflammation causes pain and you have a drop in pain, it's not unreasonable to think that going gluten-free may decrease your inflammation. So what do I say? I say, plant-based, no meat, no dairy, gluten-free. I'm sorry. For those of you who love those things, I'm sorry. That's what the data is showing may be the best diet for you. And it's not all or nothing. Like, just drop it down. Go to one meat a day instead of three. Go to fish instead of red meat. Just start making some changes so you can take control of this disease. Doesn't mean you can never have these things if you like them, but if these are risks associated directly with linear intake, drop your intake. Eat more plants. Eat more plants. Super simple. A few other facts. Hey, an increase in caffeine has shown to be associated with a decreased risk of endo. Love that one. That's because increase of caffeine increases sex hormone binding globulin which decreases testosterone and increases aromatase. Therefore, your own aromatase is eating up your estrogen and kind of dropping the disease a little. So go for the coffee. Also, vitamin D is highly anti-inflammatory. So it's a great thing. I put every patient on vitamin D. Make sure you're taking at least 1,000 IUs a day. And what are other antioxidants? Vitamin A, C, carotene. Yep, you can do those. So take a multivitamin, take extra vitamin D. Some evidence that N-acetylcysteine in a dose of 600 milligrams three times a day can increase the pain and the size of lesions in studies. So if we're having a lot of pain, that's an easy supplement to take that helps reduce reactive oxygen species, but essentially the inflammatory cytokines. So a low inflammatory diet, a diet high in antioxidants, potentially considering NAC. And guess what? Hey, Laura Shaheen, are you listening? Avoidance of endocrine disrupting chemicals because they alter the hormonal pathway. Dioxin, BPA, all the stuff we are talking about, hey, it matters here to you guys. We think that exposure to certain chemicals has been associated with an increased prevalence of endometriosis because it alters the hormone pathway, whether that means that your body then goes into this autoimmune overdrive or what is happening. We don't have the clear link. But it is easy enough to stop the plastic, drink out of stainless steel or glass, stop cooking on the Teflon, make the little changes that you can, go through your beauty products, control the things you can. Endo is a tough disease. It is a lifelong disease. I hate that women who have pain are silenced. I love seeing the women who are stepping up 
and standing strong, sharing their stories and empowering other women. This is a disease just because it only happens to women. And the primary symptom is pain and infertility does not mean that we should allow this disease to be silenced. It needs more funding for research. It needs more people talking about it. We need to advocate for younger women with endo coming in to get treatment for fertility preservation. We need to help support that generation who's trying to do it. And we need to understand that our long-term family plan may be modified if this is us. Talking to a specialist, a fertility doctor, can be helpful. And you should control the things you can. It sucks. Endo sucks. You can control what you can, eat well, take your vitamins, avoid environmental toxins, at least do what you can to fight this disease. And please don't be afraid of hormones. I know they get a bad reputation, but your hormonal system is already dysregulated if you have endo. Accept it and try to find a regimen that will work for you to prevent the disease getting worse if you are not trying to start a family. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. I know this is a longer one. These fertility ones, sometimes with hard subjects, really add up. Love all your questions. I'm going to be posing a Q&A on endo coming up, so look out for that. As always, you can follow me on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD. Check out the blog, nataliecrawfordmd.com. Feel free to leave a question there on the blog under this podcast post, and I'll get to it soon. And also, I just can't thank you enough for supporting the As A Woman podcast. This is my passion project recorded in the closet just so that you can have more information about your own fertility, understand how your body functions, and empower yourself to make the best decisions for you and your family. <music>